Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the BLP Bulletin. I'm Danielle Berman. It is Monday, February 7th. Hope you guys had a great weekend. Hope you've been having a great month so far. And I also hope that you've been able to check out and enjoy some of the interviews we've had come out recently. Two weeks ago, we dropped our episode with Adam Miller from the Good Game Foundation. Thanks again, Adam, for being on, for talking about all the awesome work you're doing. Uh, And this week, we've got another friend of mine, Ben Orbach of The Ascendant Athlete, coming on the show. So that's coming out this Thursday. So stay tuned for more uh, and be sure to follow us again on social media to get more insights and a sneak peek of the episode uh, for Ben and his work before the episode drops on Thursday morning. Okay, let's get into this week's bulletin. Raptors forward Pascal Siakam and his nonprofit organization, the PS43 Foundation, partnered with Toronto's sneaker-based charity Kickback, and they provided funds to support future initiatives in the year of 2022. They donated $25,000 and 30 pairs of sneakers. Now, the PS43 Foundation Canada is a not-for-profit founded by Pascal Siakam that aims to make aims to make a positive impact on children through education. They work with financial literacy, sports, life skills, and it really vies to give kids a leg up in society. For example, last year, the foundation launched a program that provided children with new laptops, taught them how to code. Now, Kickback was founded by Jamal Berger in 2016. It's based in Toronto. It's a youth-led organization that seeks to break barriers for kids via relatable educational experiences. The organization started as a shoe drive, and they had a mission to connect adolescents from around the city with new or gently used pairs of streetwear-adjacent sneakers. This is what they're Um, website says this is based on the idea that shoes and stories behind them promote a positive sense of identity so since then since 2016 the nonprofit has collected over 10,000 pairs of shoes they've given 4,000 to charity while providing 6,000 pairs of shoes to kids around the world and they found ways to provide workshops and events centered around that younger generation Siakam really related with the organization Kickback. He shared that growing up in Africa, he understands what it was like and what it's like to lack access to sneakers and the lack of confidence it can bring to kids and the importance of making sports, arts, life skills accessible to all communities. So Siakam's donation Kickback is going to go towards the Charities Future Programming, as well as hooking up young kids with new sneakers. So well done, Pascal. Thanks for highlighting the work that you're doing, but also using your foundation to support another great organization in your community. I loved that story. Now let's move over into the NFL. Um, Saints running back Mark Ingram is partnering with Microband 24, the um, cleaning product, to help increase youth sports participation in New Orleans. Now, if you remember uh, in our last bulletin or two bulletins ago, we talked about Ben Jones of the Las Vegas Golden Knights organization and how he launched his own Ben Jones Foundation to also support more youth sports in participation. So Ingram is doing the work around the same vein. He's partnering with Microband 24 to donate $10,000 to the 18th Ward Sports Club in New Orleans. That's a nonprofit organization that provides high quality and low cost sports programs in the city. Everyone is welcome, regardless of race, gender, income, or neighborhood. And Microband is also donating a year's supply of their disinfectant spray to the organization to continue to fight the spread of COVID-19. 
Now, the 18th Ward Sports Club works with kids mostly between four and eight years old. They provide, again, those high quality programs. They've trained coaches to make sure kids have fun and learn foundational skills to feel successful in sports. Again, we've talked about the statistics. We had Natalie Hummel from Every Kid Sports on. We've talked about the lack of access for for young kids and necessarily in some low income neighborhoods and how they don't have access to sports. It is a pay to play system here in this country. So According to the 18th Ward Sports Club, fewer than 20% of kids in Orleans Parish, which is the city limits of New Orleans, are active in sports. Fewer than 20%. That is astounding. And children from low-income families are 30% less likely to participate. They say 40% of teenage girls don't participate in sports compared to 25% of teenage boys. So this means that almost half of teenage girls do not participate in sports. A quarter of teenage boys don't have access to sports. So Mark Ingram, Microband 24, they want the percentage numbers to go up. Mark Ingram said he wants to have more children participate in youth sports. And he feels that part of his mission is to encourage more children to play sports and having protection from a company like Microband, right? Being able to prevent the spread of COVID could also get more participation in youth sports during this pandemic. So I love this story. And I also just love that so many athletes are now turning their attention to this widening gap in the youth sports space uh, between socioeconomic classes and just seeing what they can do to get kids playing the game again. I think it's really shocking to hear that within the city limits of New Orleans, Fewer than 20% of kids are playing sports. I mean, that's unreal. So it's, it's good to see athletes saying, hey, this helped me. This made a difference in my life and I want more kids to have access to it. All right, moving on. Let's talk again about name, image, and likeness. It continues to evolve in the world of college sports, and we're seeing a lot of athletes utilize NIL deals as an opportunity to give back. So at the University of Texas, Andrew Jones, a guard for their basketball team, will be donating 10% of the money he makes through NIL deals to the V Foundation for Cancer Research. Jones formerly battled leukemia himself, and he credits the V Foundation for his treatment, his recovery and ability to get back on the court. As you probably know, the V Foundation was created in honor of the legendary NC State basketball coach, Jim Valvano, and the foundation has spearheaded over $300 million in cancer research, helping patients just like Andrew Jones. And Jones says to be able to share my story on how this foundation has impacted my life while paying that forward to future families impacted by cancer is an honor. So huge congrats to Andrew Jones for getting back on the court, for going through this journey, for sharing your story, and for exemplifying how athletes can use that NIL opportunity to make a difference. We wish him the best of luck this season, and I'm so glad to see this trend continuing about how athletes have been using their NIL to make an impact. I think it's really awesome. Staying in this world of athletes using their access, their platform for impact, uh, Rosalie Fish uh, had an interview with Well and Good. If you're not familiar with Rosalie Fish, she is an NCAA track and field runner for the University of Washington. She shared how running has impacted her life. She wrote this article for Well and Good, so I highly recommend reading it. It was fascinating. She shares how she used to use running as a way to help with her depression at a young age. She's an indigenous woman, and she now uses running as an outlet to connect and represent her community and her tribe. She shares that she has really leveraged uh, her platform and races to help her bring awareness to the missing and murdered indigenous women crisis. If you remember, we've talked to Jordan Marie brings three right horses, Daniel, who also has raised a lot of awareness and continues to about the missing and murdered indigenous women crisis and just raising awareness of indigenous communities and some of the things that they need, the problems that they have in general, because 
we don't hear about this a lot. So it's great to see another athlete advocating for indigenous people. Like I mentioned, she attends the University of Washington. She has been able to make indigenous people more visible at a time when they make up just 1% of all NCAA athletes, of all NCAA athletes, of all sports at all schools, indigenous people make up just 1%. So Rosalie Fish explains her goals around raising awareness for connecting with her community. And she says, one of my goals is to be the person that I needed five or six years ago. When I get tired or feel a little bit insecure, I remember that there are native women and people from other marginalized communities who haven't yet found their own inspiration. And it's my dream to show them all that we are capable of absolutely anything. Again, I am so thrilled to see this story. Thanks to Rosalie Fish for sharing this article, for writing this article, for using her platform to highlight these bigger issues off the tree, off the track, off the field. And again, I mentioned Jordan Marie brings three white horses, Daniel. She became extremely well known as an advocate for indigenous communities after running four missing and murdered indigenous women during the Boston Marathon several years ago. So it's great to see more athletes of indigenous backgrounds standing up, speaking out, using their platforms to support their communities. And I hope that that 1% number really does change because women like uh, Jordan and Rosalie, they are setting the stage. And again, like she said, she, Rosalie said, you know, showing that you can do anything. Um, you can be a part of any community you want. Uh, but guess what? You know, we can raise awareness for those communities um, that are struggling. And I think the indigenous community certainly needs a lot of awareness. They certainly need a lot of support. Um, and the missing and murdered indigenous women crisis is something that we should all be paying attention to. All right, moving on to the National Basketball Association's Social Justice Coalition. So the NBA Social Justice Coalition was featured in Sports Illustrated. They did a really interesting article about the progress they've made since one year later, since being created. They interviewed the executive director of the coalition, James Cadigan, and other members of the coalition about the progress and the setbacks of the coalition. So this is different. This coalition is different from the NBA Foundation, which uses more traditional philanthropy, monetary donations uh, to make an impact on causes they care about. This coalition aims to affect public policy throughout the country. So uh, the executive director, James Cadigan, he says most organizations of the size and heft to the NBA are doing advocacy on corporate interests. We are doing our lobbying in this case from a purely values based perspective. I think that's interesting to delineate, right? This is the players coming together and saying we want to advocate for these things because we care, not because it's, you know, good business, not because of da da da. da. We care about these issues. So they've honed in on three specific issues, police reform criminal justice, and voter suppression. The coalition has supported three bills over the past eight months, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act, and the Equal Act. All three have passed in the House, but none have gotten through the Senate to become a federal law. So they talk about how frustrating that is, and this is going to be a lot harder than just kind of, you know, doing kind of monetary donations because anything policy-based, as we know in this country, uh, there's a lot of setbacks. There's a lot of infighting between Democrats and Republicans, and that just means there's a lot of stalled out legislation that needs to be passed, but it just it's it's easier said than done. But the members and players in the coalition um, remain optimistic that despite these political setbacks, their voices will be heard and that they'll continue to work to get things done despite these stalemates in Congress. And they talk about doing more work at the local level, too. Right. They have these voices that can be heard at the national level. But in the meantime, 
they're going to continue to work towards local legislation changes and continue to push what they can in different areas of the country. So I recommend reading the full article in Sports Illustrated. It gives a really great overview of how the organization was created, their progress so far, and their vision for the future. All right, now we're going to move over into the world of sports betting. Real Sports covered the boom in sports betting in their episode last month, but they also highlighted the dangers of gambling addiction and also the abrupt about face that leagues made uh, once sports betting was legalized. Um, if you don't, if you don't know, for many, many years, all four major sports leagues, the NHL, NBA, um, MLB, and NFL advocate like advocated hard against sports betting being legal using gambling addiction um, as one of their main reasons why they didn't think it was so there's certainly some controversy here because on the one side it can be really dangerous it can lead to addiction and as real sports highlighted even suicide in some extreme cases but on the other hand it's creating some much needed funding for states and their education budgets as well as now some new funding for youth sports programming and we've talked about how important youth sports programming that can be funded and help kids get involved for no cost or low cost is so important the aspen sports institute proposed using a cut of any proceeds from sports bet betting to support community-based recreation. So New York was the first state to pass this in April, 2021. So now a grant program is operated by the Office of Children and Family Services in New York, and it's gonna be seeded with 1% of tax revenue from mobile sports betting from the first year of state, uh, from the first year they're collecting it. So, and 5 million per year each year after. So whatever 1% is from the first year since April, 2021. So come April, 2022, in a few months, they're gonna look and say, okay, what's 1% of the tax revenue we've made? That's going. Then the next year it's going to be 5 million per year thereafter. So per the Aspen Institute, a projected 249 million revenue in fiscal year 2022 will include 200 million that's already been collected in license fees. So the authorized youth sports nonprofit grant program is going to probably have a 2.5 million year budget in year one. So think about that. That's already 2.5 million. Then they're going to have a 2023 budget of 5 million. So this grant program is going to be a huge game changer for sports-based youth development organizations and other beneficiaries across the state in the 2022 year. Now, Ohio has joined New York in enacting a similar program. And so the Aspen Sports Institute wanted to make sure that states knew that you can do this and you can help your sports programs. You can help your kids get into sports. Um, and now that sports betting is legal in 30 states and counting, I think it'll be really great to see more states responsibly roll out programs, offer the support and the safeguards, regulations needed to prevent addictions, to prevent um, a lot of this really negative side of sports betting and start to invest invest back into their communities with this money. I think it's really great to see some positive benefits to sports betting. Obviously it's a lot of fun. It makes sports a lot more exciting. Um, but I think, you know, just looking at the financial benefits that could bring to a city or a state and the education and kind of sports programming, that is really great to see. And our last story today uh, is one you've probably heard already and have probably heard a lot because it is monumental. At this point, you obviously, like I said, you've likely heard that the former head coach of the Miami Dolphins, Brian Flores, is suing the NFL in a class action lawsuit that claims discrimination in the NFL's hiring pro process. As I mentioned, this is a really huge moment. I would say one, everyone kind of knew this was happening, but nothing was really being done about it because no one really had the guts to stand up and risk their job by saying, hey, this isn't right. And I want to hold the NFL accountable. 
Brian Flores has done this. He will probably never coach again. He says he knows that may the result may be the result, but he really wanted to stand up and say something. The undefeated, uh, which is the article that I read about this issue calls it a watershed moment. And I think we all know the NFL has a rice problem. It doesn't matter which way you slice it. It's, it's definitely an issue in the league. Um, as you may know, they instituted the Rooney rule many years ago. And the Rooney rule said that you had to hire someone of uh, a diverse background in the coaching process. If you were interviewing 20 white candidates, you had to interview someone um, that was a person of color in order for the hire to be legitimate. Now, what that has caused is a lot of teams bringing in a person of color as kind of a like mandatory interview, but they aren't actually considering them for the job. And this happened to Brian Flores. He says that he has had several interviews for several teams over the years where they weren't taken seriously. People came late. Um, he accused, um, you know, um, John Elway at the Broncos of coming in hungover. So clearly not taking it seriously, making him feel like this interview was not legitimate, which very well could not have been. So really shows that the Rooney rule has kind of been a sham, a facade that really was for PR reasons. It hasn't worked. Um, and again, this is the same league that forced out a backup quarterback who used his first amendment rights to protest social injustice. And now they're only starting to embrace statements like end racism after the brutal murder of George Floyd and have never admitted or publicly apologized to Kaepernick about how he was treated. So again, for coaches, it's that different kind of race pro problem. They don't get the chances or if they do, they're like just for show or they're short lived. Um, and one analyst in an interview last week on TV described coaching and leadership among the NFL teams, a white boy circle. And it seems that so many people at the top and, and again, we're talking at the top the owners, right? These are the people that make hiring decisions. These are the people who had the final say. They're content to keep it that way and they work really hard to do so. I also read that being an NFL owner is so hard. It's so hard to get into that circle. There's so many rules around qualifications and things you have to have to own an NFL team. And I you could probably say, oh, but these people own a portion of this team and this team and they're diverse, but it's a minority ownership. So to be a majority owner of a football team, there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through. And a lot of people are saying that this lawsuit could actually shake up not only the rules around hiring coaches, but also the rules about bringing in a more diverse class of ownership and really creating more opportunities for people to own teams. Um, and so I think, you know, the Super Bowl is coming up this weekend. This is not the news the NFL wanted to be dealing with, but I really hope that Brian Flores's courage helps other coaches with similar experiences continue to speak out. We need the evidence. We need the receipts. And one thing is for sure, Brian Flores has made a huge change for coaches of color that are coming after him just by speaking out, just by filing this lawsuit, regardless of the result, he has made a powerful statement that he's not going to sit down and let this happen again. He's not going to continue to be treated um, as if he doesn't matter, that his skills aren't as important because he is black. He is a person of color. So we all owe Brian Flores our support and encouragement as he takes on the NFL in this fight. And I, again, think that he has already made a huge difference in the fact that he has said, I'm done. I'm not going to put up with this. And for the future coaches in the NFL, they shouldn't have to put up with this either. So congrats to Brian Flores for your courage. I know this was definitely not an easy thing to do to sacrifice your career in a sport that you love and a sport that you're amazing at coaching in. So we should all give him the respect that he is due. And that's it for this week. 
Thank you guys for tuning in to learn more about the world of sport philanthropy and athlete activism. Please support our podcast and rate and review us on Apple and Spotify so we can reach even more listeners. You can connect with me on Good Pods. Let me know what you love and who you want to see on the show. Enjoy Ben's episode dropping on Thursday, and I will see you back here next time for some more great conversations from the big league philanthropist. Have a great week, everybody.